Trust you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, our plan over the next few days, it really is just the next week, if you count today and next Sunday in it, we're going we're, we're gonna to get towards the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And then on Tuesday, we're going to finish chapter 15. Um, because that's an incredibly appropriate passage for the celebration of Christmas. Because all of 15 has been all about the gospel and all about why Jesus came. And he didn't come to be a baby for the sake of being a baby. And he didn't come to be born so that we could have a reason in the month of December to decorate and to have little nativity scenes and to sing familiar carols. He came for a specific purpose. He uses himself the words mission and the father sent him to accomplish some things and to set in motion some things and last week we began unpacking what are these things that Jesus set into motion and we thought together about the fact that the victory over death is assured because the tomb is empty you can take that one to the bank we might say The victory over death is assured. The victory over death is coming because Jesus is returning. And the victory over death is absolute. There will not be anything outside of the conquering, victorious, final word that King Jesus will pronounce. And we tried to just very briefly last week, and I did so in about a sentence or two. It's just tremendous if we try to just get our minds wrapped around this idea that death will be no more. Because it is the most common thing that all of us experience. It is like, outside of maybe breathing, it's perhaps the one thing that all of humanity has in common with it. And with each other. And so to just get our minds to dial into this truth that death will be no more, it's like asking a fish to think about not being wet. Because it's been so wrapped up and a part of the human experience. But it was something that we were never intended to experience. It's the result of sin. It's the result of this first Adam disobeying And as the representative for humanity, plunging, not just those who would come and be born of he and Eve and their children and grandchildren and right on down the line, but also the entire created order itself. That death invaded, and death is an imposter. We were not made for it. It was not part of God's very good design. It is not what he built into the fabric. And even to get our minds wrapped around what it would have been like if Adam hadn't have done it. What would the world be like without death? I, I, I can't even fathom some of that because it's so a part of everything that we know. But this hope that's declared is that the victory over death is assured. The victory over death is coming and the victory over death is absolute. We tried to summarize that a little bit last week to say Jesus is risen, he is returning, and he is reigning. If you want to boil it down even further, even more concisely, Jesus wins. 
he will have the final word. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and especially the passage we looked at last week and, and a little bit into our text here this morning, Paul doesn't give us a full detailed timeline of what's going to happen in these final moments. And I, I think our fellowship's got a pretty good understanding of some end times aspects. And if what we understand about the end times is accurate to the scriptures, what Paul does in these passages is he, he, he takes 3,000 years of history and writes a few verses about them. And he doesn't give everything there is to be given, but what he gives is true, and what he gives he does for a very specific purpose, because he wants us to understand some things about what is coming, and this hope that we have. And so before we go any farther and hop into the text and think through the, the next layer of details that he gives about this victory that we'll experience, let's pray and then we'll head to the text and try to understand it. Well, Jesus, again, in your name, we not only have gathered, but we draw near now. And we do so because of what you have done. We do so in, the, the, in obedience to the command that you have given us to do so. We do so to find grace and mercy in our time of need. And Jesus, I confess that my, my time of need is a whole lot more frequent than I even understand it to be. And as we think through trying to understand your word. We just recognize that that in of itself is a time of need. You tell us earlier in 1 Corinthians that the spiritual truths aren't discerned by what is natural. And that your spirit unpacks truth and turns on the lights, as it were, helps us see so we pray for that. We ask for that. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear and, and eyes that see. Would you help us to understand even more of the hope that we have in you because of who you are, because of what you have done, and because of what you have promised. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Well, look with me at verse 35, if you will. And there we're going to see this question get introduced. It's actually a couple questions. But Paul begins to introduce what he's going to spend the next several verses discussing. And it's this question of, what are these bodies going to look like? What are these resurrection bodies going to be? And there you just see it right in the text. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, if you just read forward to verse 36, you're going to see his answer is pretty strong. He writes, you foolish person. It's actually just literally translated, you fool and th those are strong words, even for us to say that to one another. It, it, it brings with it a connotation 
of uh, how in the world are you missing this? And I, I think Paul intends that to be what is understood. And what we don't know is whether or not somebody's in the background scoffing regarding this resurrection. Again, as we thought through a couple weeks ago, this idea of life after death and a resurrection body was something foreign to Roman and or Greek culture. Well, Corinth was a Greek city that was colonized by Rome. They had a double whammy, so to say, working against them in thinking through this idea that the dead would be raised to life. So we don't know if somebody's scoffing in the background, if Paul's anticipating somebody to scoff in the background. We don't know if somebody actually had these questions. We're not even sure if they're legitimate questions in the sense that somebody's just honestly wanting to know. But Paul gives a pretty strong response. And then what he does from there is he begins to answer the question. And the first several answers that he gives comes by an illustration through creation. And that's where he goes next. He illustrates the truths he wants to communicate by pointing to creation. Go back to verse 36. He writes, you fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and, each, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of a, one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Paul begins to give the answer to the question, what are the resurrection bodies going to look like, by first pointing to creation. And I think if we were to summarize what I just read, it would be perhaps in these three bullets that what is sown and what are reaped, or what is reaped, are different. God chooses the body and the seed, and there are different bodies, different glories, and therefore different seeds. If we wanted to boil that down any further, any more concisely, here's what I think Paul's saying, and the reason why he points to creation. He's wanting the Corinthians to consider the world around them, and the universe around them, the sun, moon, and stars as well, and think about the profound power and creative agency that God has in and of himself to speak those things into being. And as if he's then just saying, he's done it once. He's got this. He's going to do it again. It's not that hard. I think if we were just to kind of boil it down even further and kind of just a broad stroke summary, he's got it. This isn't difficult for him. It's not hard for the man who has spoken all things into existence. But along the way, he gives us 
a few things to consider. And the first is that what is sown and what are reaped are different. And we see this all around our world. And I just dropped it. There we go. I'm going to have to go find it. Okay, but here I have with me somebody able to identify anything, any idea what this is. It's dried, if that helps you. And you can shout it out. We're going to actually have some fun here in a minute. Um, about what, anybody, what? Looks like a pea. It is not a pea. Would it help you if I'd said it was at one time yellow? It's not a mustard seed. A little bigger than a mustard seed. Callie, did you have an idea? It is corn. It is corn. I would not offer this to you, but if I had a prize, I would give it to you. Um, Here's what Paul's saying. What is sown and what are reaped are different. Now, this being a kernel of corn is actually the fruit of the seed that this kernel contains. And a kernel of corn is pretty fascinating. The outer shell in a kernel of corn has six different layers to it. And then when they're not all dried and crusty, if you look at them, you can sometimes be able, you're sometimes able to identify the little white spot right in the middle. That's the seed. That's the embryo that then germinates when it's planted. Corn's a pretty amazing thing. Paul's just saying, look, when, when, when you plant this, what you get is the stalk. And then it yields fruit. And the fruit contains a seed. But what is sown and what are reaped are different. Let's, let's, let's do a few more. Um, all right. Anybody have an idea what these are? They are not sunflower seeds. I believe they are watermelon seeds. I did this on Friday, and quite frankly, I forget the order I did them in. So we're going to go with watermelon at this point, and I've got, I've got the fruit coming next. And uh, so if my, there we go. It is watermelon seed. All right, so very good, Laura. Um, oh, let's go back just for a moment. The point remaining, those are very different, correct? Now that seed contained all the genetic material and blueprint needed to give a vine which would create the fruit, right? But the seed is not the fruit. That's Paul's point. They're different. How about these? Anybody have an idea what those are? Apple, correct. I have no idea what variety. This is just what Google gave me. Um, and there is a bowl of apples. The point, again, the seed looks different than the fruit. Certainly different than the tree, and Paul's just saying, look at the created order. Look at what God's already done. This is not too hard for him. How about these? Anybody have an idea? It's, it's, it's a little difficult. It is not one blob. It is not blueberry. Ruth? It is not coffee. It is not pomegranate. Peppercorn. Peppercorn is peppercorn's a fruit. So if you put enough of that on your meal today at lunch, you can have a full serving. Um, This is how peppercorn grows. This is a pretty amazing plant. Again, peppercorn is the fruit. Inside the fruit is the seed. And there is a single seed inside a peppercorn that when planted and photosynthesis and all of those awesome botany things go to work, you get... What's on the right? How about those? 
There's your coffee. Green coffee beans, unroasted coffee beans. Okay, now here is a gradient of coffee beans from the fruit off the coffee tree all the way to ground and ready to brew. Okay, so on day three, the Lord made these and he said it was good. All right. That is right. I think this is the last one. Anybody have an idea what this is? Yes, Emma? They are not peas. Think smaller, Ruth. It is a mustard seed, all right? So Jesus famously pointing to a mustard seed in the parable of the mustard seed as a way to make this contrast of what faith is. And here is the tree that those seeds come from. So that seed yields that tree. The point remains that what is sown and what are reaped are different. One commentator said this, eternal life is not like the leaf that merely rots away after it has fallen from the tree. No, it is like the seed that germinates and then enters into existence even more beautiful than had it been before. What is sown and what are reaped are different. So what about this body? Paul first says, look, just, just think about just think about vegetation. Think about agriculture. Think about what you see in the midst of your everyday lives as you plant and you harvest and you reap. Those bodies are going to be sown, but then they're going to be raised. And God chooses both the body and the seed. This is where we really begin to pick up the sense that God's got this. The word Paul uses there regarding God's choice in verse 38 but God gives it a body as he has chosen that was a word we saw show up in first Corinthians chapter 12 as he was unpacking the metaphor of the body of believers that God has so chosen and arranged the body of believers it's a word and it's certainly a verse and it's certainly a thought that takes our focus and puts our attention on the sovereignty of God. God's got this. He knows what he's doing. The one who spoke all things into being is certainly capable of rising or resurrecting from the grave those who have gone asleep and transforming them. Thirdly, the, the universe gets brought into it. And I think we just see the same things happening. Number three is a bit of a repeat per se. That there are different bodies, different glories, and different, therefore different seeds. Paul, along the way, talks about humans. And he talks about animals. And he talks about birds. And he talks about fish. And then he goes terrestrial, and, or celestial, I should say. And it's now a universe in view. But the point remains that... God knows exactly what he's doing. God doesn't confuse dogs and humans. And humans don't come from dogs. God hasn't confused fish and cats. And one hasn't led to another. Because God created different flesh. And he created different stars. 
And he created a moon, which is considered to be the lesser light in the scriptures, to be a reflection of the greater light, which is itself a star. And stars differ in glory, all because of the sovereign design of God. As I was just thinking through this morning and and just kind of praying through everything again, I, I found myself wondering if this verse had shown up in all of those verses about creation we had read. And I'm not sure it did, because it didn't necessarily have in it words that I was searching for at that point. Um, But I'm going to go back, and if it's not there, I'm going to add it. So if we ever do that again, we've got one more verse to read. Um, But the point there remains that God's in charge. We're not sure what this is all going to look like, but God's in charge. That's where he puts the focus and the direction. That's where he wants our hope and confidence and expectation of eternity to rest. Not in the nitty gritty details, but in the one who holds the nitty gritty details in the palms of his hands. That's where the emphasis is placed. It's as if Paul is just simply saying, the designs and differences within creation are the results of God's sovereign design. And he had no trouble with it the first time around. He'll certainly have no trouble with it the second. And Revelation 21 and 22 pictures a recreated heaven and a recreated earth that as was read this morning will not have a sea. Again, it's virtually impossible for us to picture earth without water and I'm not even sure what all that looks like but that's what the scriptures tell us well moving from illustrations in creation Paul then addresses and answers the question a little bit more specifically and does so with a little bit more clarity and so we've we've moved beyond look at creation and now he's just making statements regarding what these bodies will be like for those who trust in Jesus. And he says this, and there are five things that he outlines to say, this is the resurrection body. It will be imperishable, it will be glorified, it will be powerful, it will be spiritual, and it will be like Jesus. Go with me to verse 42. Let's read these verses. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life or a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
you'll notice the repetition of the words sown and raised preceding at least the first four. And I want to unpack what these ideas are with you because they're significant. But again, all of them are like trying to ask a fish to think about what it's like to not be wet. Because we don't know what it's like to be imperishable. But these are the glorious truths we await. In the beginning, there is the first, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Here's what I take that to mean. What is raised is immortal. It is no longer shackled by immortality. That word imperishable means not being subject to decay or dissolution or corruption. It is the opposite of being subject to decay and corruption. And there you have the contrast given what is put in the grave obviously had been subject to corruption. But what is raised will be immortal and no longer shackled by mortality. Secondly, we are told that what is raised will be glorified. I take that to mean it's the idea of being perfect. No longer groaning under the weight of Sin, the word glory means splendor, it means radiance, it means brightness. And the contrast is between what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It will be raised perfect, no longer groaning under the weight of sin. And here, I don't think the, I don't think the sense is so much our personal sin and the wages of those sins that bring death. As Paul tells us in Romans 6, I think the groaning and the weight is under the corruption that is built into now creation as a result of Adam's sin. It's the, it's the ears that don't hear well and need hearing aids. It's the eyes that don't see well and need glasses. It's the knees that need replaced. There's a groaning. There's a weight of sin that, that is outside of our choices. I mean, the, the fact that you may need hearing aids or wear eyeglasses, it's probably not the direct result of your sinful choices. It's a part of the brokenness that's inherent to the created order because of Adam's disobedience. Romans 8 tells us that the earth itself is groaning, waiting for when God fully redeems the sons of men. We will be raised perfect. We will no longer groan under the weight of sin because there will be no more sin. Thirdly, we will be raised in power I take that to mean victorious, no longer beset or tempted by indwelling sin, the influence of the world, or the wiles of Satan. I thought it was a great moment to throw in the word wiles. It's a word we don't use a lot. It's a good word. Be raised powerful. Be raised in victory. And here's something that we just need to understand. That the body we have now, is still dead. 
it's still capable of sin. Sin still resides in it. It still has sinful desires. We're, we're, we're new creations, absolutely. But there still remains in us the capacity and the desires to be tempted by sin, to long for sin, to be influenced by the world, the wiles of Satan. And Paul gets after this in Romans 8, and there's verse 11. I want to read you verses 9 and 10 that precede it, but I didn't want it to be super tiny on the screen. But there in verse 9, Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's what Paul's saying. To be a follower of Jesus is to be indwelt with the spirit of Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. We're saved. We're sealed. We're indwelt. There's a guarantee that what God has begun, he will be good for and he will complete. But our bodies are still dead. Our bodies still break down. Our bodies are still perishable. Our bodies still have dishonor. Our bodies still have weakness. Because the fullness of that salvation has not come yet. And it's in that context that then we read later in the same chapter, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons of the redemption of our bodies. There's this tension in the scriptures that's best summarized with the words, already not yet. That already we are indwelt with the Spirit of God. Already we are new creations in Christ. Already we have been adopted. Already we have been sealed. Already we have been guaranteed that God will do what he said he would do. But not yet do we have a new body. Not yet are we free from temptation. Not yet are our bodies free from desires for sin. Not yet are we free from the wiles of Satan. But there is a day. And it will be a glorious day. You and I still have a body that is dead and mortal and we're, we're awaiting the redemption of those bodies. The third thing Paul says regarding the body that is to be raised is that it will be powerful. It will be victorious and no longer tempted by indwelling sin, the influence of the world, or the wiles of Satan. I don't know if you've seen the news this past week or not, 
but this news made news headlines everywhere. Last Saturday, there was a a baby, about two years old, that didn't wake up. And those parents and then the group of individuals that are involved in those parents began praying for a resurrection and have done so all week and it caught the attention of all sorts of news outlets and media and by and large it seems as if they've been respectful but it certainly causes questions and there is an inherent brokenness in our world that leads to babies not waking up that leads to babies not coming out of the womb that leads to children not living as long as we would want them to live or parents or grandparents or whatever it may be there's an inherent brokenness in our world and the victory over death is assured it is coming it will be absolute but it's not yet It's not yet. Paul says that the bodies we have now are perishable. They're dishonorable. They're weak. They're natural. And there's a brokenness inherent to that. And has Jesus paid it all? Yes. Has he promised a victory over death? Yes. But we're waiting for that. Those are promises made to us in the future. Not the here and now. I wrote a letter to some friends a couple weeks ago. They They lost a baby early in the process of pregnancy. And I was just trying to encourage him and wrote at the end of this letter that you weren't, you're, you're rightly to groan in the face of death. It's right and it's good to feel the weight and the sorrow and the grief of that because you weren't ever made for it. And in some ways, my encouragement to them was, was, was lean in to that. Don't hide from it. Don't try to run from it. It's actually, it's, it's, it's good and right to feel the weight of it. Because you were never made for it. Because this body we have now is perishable and it's dishonorable and it's weak and it's natural and there's this brokenness within the created order that will one day no longer exist but that exists today and while we live in a broken world we must also rejoice that Christ has conquered sin that he has risen from the grave and that he has told us today's light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
This world is not the best there will ever be. God has something far greater in store for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And part of what is in store is an imperishable body. Part of what is in store is a glorified body. Part of what is in store is a powerful body. Part of what is in store is a spiritual body. I take this to mean fully alive. No longer bound by the limitations of our natural bodies. And here again, we are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. There it shows up in Romans 8, 22 and 23. We get a taste now. The Spirit's there now. He's guaranteeing now that what Jesus started, He will complete. And one day we will be fully alive, no longer bound by the limitations of our natural bodies. And lastly, Paul says over the course of four or five, if not six verses, we will one day be like Jesus. And here in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, he writes something similar. Here the sense isn't so much a focus on the resurrection body, but how you and I are to live here and now because of what is promised. And he says, our citizenship's in heaven. Yeah, we may have a Waynesboro address. We may have a place here on this earth that we can lay our heads and that we call home. But that's not where our ultimate citizenship is. That residence is in heaven. And from it, that being heaven, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's what Paul's saying in verses 45 and following. The first Adam became a life-giving being. The last Adam, that being Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. As was, verse 48, the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is just on repeat saying, we will be like Jesus. And So you want to know what these resurrection bodies are going to look like. Look at the world around you. Look at the created order that exists. See yourselves that what is planted is different than what is harvested or what grows out of what is planted. See the fact that God's got this all under control. And the one who spoke all things into being at the point in time of the first creation is certainly more than capable of creating a new heavens and a new earth and resurrection bodies. But therein, this body that we will have will be imperishable. It will be glorified. It will be 
powerful, it will be spiritual, and it will be like Jesus. And so we join with John in saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Had to make a song change for the end this morning. The song we originally were planning to sing was the song, Oh Praise the Name. We've, we've sung it a bunch. It's like the song we sing now. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, on the very last slide, when we have copyright information that shows up, um, that song title is, Oh Praise the Name, and then in parenthesis, it has another word that you probably have no idea what it means. It's the word Anastasis, and it literally is the Greek word for resurrection that Paul uses throughout all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that is used throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. But we were going to sing that song and thought, wow, that's just a great way to just cast our mind to Calvary and think about the coming back of Jesus and the return. And so when Damien had texted me and was walking to the church this morning, I thought, all right, that's probably not, we're probably not going to be able to pull that one off without the guitar. And what, what else could we do? So my mind starts going through like the anthology of hymns that I have stored up here. And I knew Brenda was going to be on the keys, and she's tremendous and fully capable of playing anything out of that red hymnal back there. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go look. And I pulled the hymnal off the shelf. And, and I don't, I forget if I flipped there or if it just flipped. I don't want to make too much of it. But the song, Jesus is Coming Again, piqued my interest. And I was like, that sounds familiar. So I started looking at the chorus, and I was like, I know that chorus. And all of a sudden, I get transported back to the miracle building in the Hiawatha National Forest, where this larger-than-life, in both size and personality, camp director would be leading this song at the end of either the week of camp or a particular sermon at camp. Thought that's just a good song. So we're talking about that this morning, and I, I say the name of the song, and Larry goes, Oh, it's the skating song. What do you mean by that? That's the song we played when we were skating as kids. That's cool. And just a reminder in some ways of just the power some of these songs have. So we're gonna sing that one. If you wanna skate, feel free to skate. But it's a good, good song about the promise of Jesus and his return. And the victory over death is assured. And the victory over death is coming. And the victory over death is absolute because Jesus is risen. Jesus is returning. And Jesus is reigning. Would you stand They're going to walk up, I'm going to move back, and we'll raise our voices together and sing this.